You know, I'm getting the feeling that our emotional response to the climate crisis is starting to be talked about more and more. Here we are at the beginning of another new year and people just seem to be really waking up to the fact that we not only need to embrace the grief that's hitting us about the destructive situation we're in, to say the least, but uh, that that grief in and of itself might just hold the answer as to how we can move forward. It's uh, one of the cornerstones, really, in our being able to build a new regenerative culture. So it's good to listen in this episode to three people who are involved in the kind of support groups or affinity groups that are now growing around Extinction Rebellion to help facilitate these kinds of conversations around mental health and the regenerative culture side of Extinction Rebellion's work. And it's also good to hear how these two now seasoned activists, Francis Stoteley and Tom Deacon, got involved in XR in the first place and the sort of reservations and fears that they felt about it in the early days. So here they are in conversation with a psychologist who's been working closely with their local group, Wendy Holway of the CPA. I'm Verity Sharp. Enjoy another climate crisis conversation. Welcome, Francis and Tom. (laughs) So thank you very much for this. And I want to start by asking you how you came to be involved in Extinction Rebellion. Well, I can remember two things very clearly. One is having a discussion about the desire and need to do some action in terms of making change happen around the sort of ecological crisis, Um, rather than just being frustrated and upset and signing petitions and things. And not very long after that, getting these little snippets, I think, really, of conversation and awareness that there was some kind of action emerging and happening. Um, How long ago was this, Francis? That would have been around September Mm. 2018. Which is when Extinction Rebellion launched, pretty much, isn't it? I think just afterwards. It it launched just after that time, didn't it? Mm. Or it was certainly around then. Um, And, you know, even through sort of social media, hearing that there were... There was something happening Mm. and suddenly it was like, actually, I need to investigate that further. Here's an opportunity I've been asking for. Mm. Yeah, I mean, for me, when you ask that question, it delves right back deep into my childhood, really. Um, I was sharing this recently with um, some young people I gave a talk to about my life and how it's led to being part of Extinction Rebellion. And I spent a lot of my early childhood holidays on beaches in the Jurassic coast of Dorset um, where I really started to notice that the world changed um, year to year even in my childhood I I recognised that change and it's led me into you know a journey in my life around studying change um, going to university and focusing on oceans and atmosphere and, and climate change and then through my working life I've been working in environmental education, sharing that with with young people and with educators, you know, around our relationship with the natural world and and the dynamic nature of the natural world. And so throughout that, I've had this, you know, deep awareness of 
of the changes going on and the scientific awareness of those changes that you know have really touched me deeply from the science to the, to the sort of personal response. So when I heard um, through my my parents' local newspaper in Stroud in Gloucestershire, there was a front page where there was about 20 people stood on the zebra crossing outside the bus station in Stroud, blocking the road to make a point about climate change. And I had this discussion with my mum about their name, and it was called Extinction Rebellion, and we found it quite challenging. Um, but very, very quickly, we found ourselves right in the thick of it. Mm. For me, that feels like a really important point, that sort of struggle I think we both had about the name Extinction Rebellion, what that evoked for for us individually. There were all sorts of things, because it was it was around something that mattered so much suddenly you know the name the imagery the you know was this all meeting these very personal journeys that we've both been on around this issue was it going to meet it was it going to speak what is at my heart and and I you know and I remember really struggling before we'd even gone to an action and I think that's a really key point actually struggling with is that imagery representative is that what I would use or and I would say for me even though it has been a really long process over the year of of sort of assimilating everything around um, being involved in Extinction Rebellion it was going to that first action that shifted everything in terms of how I connected with this movement of Extinction, Extinction Rebellion and suddenly those worries about the name exactly, the imagery, those things sort of dropped away to a, to a quite a big extent because of the impact of the going to the first action. And I think it's really important for people to hear each other's stories and that, you know, this is all about stories, how we live our lives and how we understand the world and how we relate to one another and our culture. And it's so easy to, to tell stories about what's, you know, what's missing or what isn't quite right about any movement and particularly when it's a movement that's that's challenging you know ourselves because it's connecting with our our deeper feelings around you know climate breakdown and, and the ecological emergency but also that it's challenging a system which feels so enormous and so un, unstoppable if you like you know our, our system of capitalism and and politics that we live in that that we have to hear each other's small stories to make it manageable. Um, and that we all go through these real internal struggles. Well, I say we all, I can only speak for myself, but to go through these internal struggles coming into something that signifies such huge intention that Extinction Rebellion does. Um, and yeah, as Francis said, for me, it was also the first point of connection which turned that for me because I went you know I was really struggling with that inside about taking that first step and for me it was going to a, a non-violent direct action training in Leeds um, where I came together in a room of 40 people none of us really knew each other none of us knew much about the movement um, the declaration of rebellion in London I think had just happened so we were starting to hear more about it um, and from going to that that room in Leeds I came away going, yeah, this is what I'm doing. Because 
I'd gone with this doubt about the non-violent part of the movement. And for me to step into this fully, I had to really feel that and believe that that was at the heart of it. Um, because that's deep within me to, you know, although this is hugely violent in many ways, or that what we're facing is a huge amount of violence in terms of, you know, the, the breakdown of our, of our natural systems because of what we are doing um, in the world, both to biodiversity and to the climate system and to many, many other natural systems. We have to meet it with compassion, we have to meet it with love, we have to meet it with community. So for me, and you know, we're here to talk about the regenerative culture, that was, and I didn't know that term at that time, but that was what was at the heart of it for me. Um, and from there I've so been committed. The key to your worries getting involved was about the centrality of non-violence in the whole credo of Extinction Rebellion. Is yeah. that one of the things you were referring to, Francis, before that first action? Absolutely. So tell me about what that first action felt like that cured your worries. Um, so it was, was it November? Early November. Early yeah. November uh, 2018, and I got on a coach with a few other people from my area in Calderdale and a few people that come down from Newcastle and we gathered together on oh no am I mixing the two that was April mixing the two <laughs> well it doesn't matter been to London more in yeah. the last year than I have <laughs> been for a long time so I can't remember how I got to London for that first action but basically it was where we closed five bridges in London um, in one go and I guess the, the thing I do remember is waiting in a coffee shop sort of around the corner off the bridge somewhere and really, really not knowing what I was going into. And I'd not managed to get to a, um, a non-violent direct action training. So I'd had no connection really with anybody um, and was very, very nervous about what we would do, how the police would respond what it would feel like you know it I just had no idea I just felt really guilty immediately you know that like I was going to be arrested straight away or something um and I remember writing numbers on our arms which were the numbers of um, a lawyer firm that would that are used to dealing with people that that get arrested through um this sort of action protests um, so it was very high, highly intense experience. There was a lot of tension because we were actually there with a group of people that have had a, a lot more experience than us in, in direct actions and, and, and non-violent civil disobedience. And none of us had a clue what was going to happen. The police were around. We were trying to remain very inconspicuous. And we had no idea exactly when it was going to happen, but... Eventually, you know, these, this bridge, and we were on Blackfriars Bridge, you know, the, the pavements either side started filling with people. Again, a lot of nervous tension. Nobody was there to tell us what to do because this is also a huge part of the movement, you know, how you organise, how we organise in a very, very different way. And that can feel very chaotic sometimes, very unknown. 
Um, but, you know, uncertainty is something that we've been exploring a lot in life, knowing that this is a huge element of what we have to learn to live with. Um, and so this was yet another intensely uncertain moment. And the second somebody said, let's just go in the road, and we stepped into the road, it was all very incoherent. Some people sat in the road. They were, it wasn't all together. It was spread across the whole bridge. Um, and then the police just pulled their vans across and shut the road for us. And that was it. The rest of the day, we were, we had this incredible, euphoric experience of being on a bridge with, I don't know, a thousand or more people. And we eventually coalesced into the centre of the bridge when the whole bridge was shut. We could see the next bridge with double-decker buses sat still on it, so we knew that bridge was blocked. Um, and there was a sound system, there were speakers, there was music, and there was kids' games. People were drawing with chalk across the, the road, beautiful images and patterns. There were flags. It, it just felt incredible. And there was this amazing sense of community of people coming together in the face of something devastating to do something beautiful. Yeah. It, it impresses me listening to that, just how much was achieved from nothing. How brave that it was launched that way. Mm. Mm -hmm. and, and even back then, what an achievement. Mm. And it so must have touched the same nerve with all of those people who showed mm. up and took the same risks as you two did. Yeah, so there were about 6,000 people, it was estimated, that day that came and took those actions and held those bridges for four or five hours at least and then coalesced together into the most incredibly euphoric march from one bridge to the next, collecting the next bridge until we all came into Parliament Square and, and blocked Parliament Square for a while and had a sort of closing ceremony. Um, and what, you know, has been so interesting you know, being part of the evolution of this movement is to see how the confidence has shifted and and how, you know, a big part of that is the relationship with the police and, and sort of knowing each other, as it were. Um, because immediately following that weekend, there was then a week um, of of swarming actions in London, so moving smaller groups of people, blocking roads in, in rush hour and through the day, and I went back to London for that, that week and it was an utterly different experience and it was actually my first sort of introduction to the true need for, for action well-being as, as a sort of action part of the regenerative culture. Um, yeah, it was a lot grittier because you were face to face with very, very angry people that were obviously being disrupted on their way to work or in deliveries and so on. And you were, because of those smaller groups, you had a very much more one-to-one -one interaction. So there was also a learning process. I remember hearing from discussing it with you of, you know, not taking it all personally because you, in, those, in the first day, I remember you just being sort of emotionally completely battered by these one-to-one -one experiences, which is very different from being with, you know, a thousand people on a bridge. Um, the where you actually had, yeah, yeah. And, and where you had that distance between you and the people that were being disrupted in that moment. Um, but actually, and, and this sort of, you know, we'll touch into, I guess, what we'll talk about for the April and October uprisings. 
is that when you do have that one-to-one contact with you know other human beings that are not of the same mind as you are in terms of what you're doing they might be supportive of you know a movement to try and get action on climate and ecological breakdown but they're not supportive of the action you're taking that is a disruptive action to the economy of which we are all a part and so there's that personal disruption and for me that has been the most solidifying part of the process in in checking in with my resolve to continue because if you can come face to face with the level of stress for people urban urban living with the pressures that come with it and you know needing to earn a living and it's all time 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 on top of the distress of facing up to climate and ecological breakdown you know you meet the darker emotions within the population and that's we have to do that to to move with this it's not just about disrupting government this is about disrupting our ourselves in a positive way to be able to start to work with you know our inner work around our emotional response was that in the in the November the first action where the bridges were taken briefly is that where an idea of the well-being role started or did that come by only by April I think it was already in place because I remember seeing people locked on in that action in the middle of the bridge which is the first time I've ever seen anything close up like that and there was at least one if not two or three people for each person locked on giving them um, making sure they had water um, snacks emotional support um, there, and there was sort of this this I don't want to say a wall because that, that sort of but there was this group of people around them and their entire focus was about the well-being of those people that were incredibly vulnerable that had locked mm. themselves onto the road um, and that was very clearly in place and I think it's worth saying you know both France and I this is the first time that we've really stepped fully into this sort of civil disobedience and, and non-violent direct action and been part of a support network within it and and so it's very hard to say where this regenerative culture and the well-being side has come from because I imagine it has a huge lineage through activism and you know there are many many more people within Extinction Rebellion with a lot more experience than we have um, so this is just a story I suppose of of how that's evolved from our perspectives. I'm very interested in how the well-being role that evolves when you're in the middle of an action, and I know that you've been very, very active that way since since then, how that well-being role actually kind of opens out into regenerative culture, both on the actions, because that's modelling something for, you know, the wider wider future, and also for when people come back and pick up being XR in their local communities alongside their everyday lives. Mm, well, maybe I could just share a small sort of snippet of what happened in those November swarming actions, because for me that was the first time I came across, you know, 
a role within an affinity group, you know, these small groups that act together and, and look out for each other. So just by, by forming an affinity group, you're already holding a regenerative culture because it's about care and it's about a community of people acting together. Um, so I did that for three days and on the third day <clears throat> I had a train home and I, I just felt I, I couldn't get arrested that day and there hadn't actually been any arrests but I was keen to just put myself in a different position so I took on a well-being um, role, so wearing a blue sash saying well-being on it, having a trolley full of hot drinks and snacks and things to look after people um, but also taking on this role of of being the person that encourages a vibrant atmosphere, gets people singing. You know, it's about morale as well as looking out for the physical and the emotional needs mm. of that group of people. Um, and it was an amazing experience. It felt, yeah, it felt really generative for me. You know, and we know that as, as humans, it gives us great purpose and meaning to look after each other um, and to do it in a very intense situation um, that also itself has a lot of purpose and meaning um, was incredible and that then sort of continued into our story I guess for, yeah. for subsequent actions. Yeah so putting myself back on that bus going to London in April this year, <laughs> doesn't seem possible, um, the well-being sort of for me started when I gathered with those people and got onto that bus, we already started to rewrite songs with lyrics that that were about what we were doing or, or connecting. So we were coming together, writing songs with, you know, people I'd never met before. I was sitting on the bus next to people I'd not connected with. We were laughing, we were sharing maybe some of our nervousness about things, um, creating these songs. I was sewing some flags, so people there was quite a lot of creative things happening. All of, all of which creating this atmosphere of support, I suppose, for what we were about to go into. Again, I was incredibly nervous. Um, and I had signed up to, to sort of support Tom, actually, with well-being. Because my big thing was I wasn't sure that... I felt so emotional about taking part that I wasn't sure that, if I, that I'd be able to support someone else who was feeling emotional. Mm. Um, so the first day, I mean, I think I cried a lot <laughs> on the first day in London um, and kept sort of, I had the sash, the blue sash that said well-being and I needed to know that I could take it off if I needed to. And I wasn't sure how much I wanted to wear it and actually that's a really key part of ongoing sort of regenerative culture is this sort of radical consent, which maybe you can explain that word more, yeah. but it felt very applicable right then. <laughs> yes, yeah, just a very, very clear invitation to, to slow down our yeses, because we can live in a culture where we say yes to so many things that actually we get overwhelmed. Um, and so to, you know, be very considerate about that so that we have the capacity ourselves to continue this work, because it's so fundamental. Um, and also to say, you, you know, you asked about where where things flow from one to the other between action, well-being, and regenerative culture. And for me, you know, it's the word culture and and the the overlap and the the interplay with community. Because for me, what is generated in those actions, and we you know we know this that in intense situations uh, and adverse situations, we come together. And, and we've seen this locally here with, with major flooding, you know, which is also a link with climate change. 
um, and people come together and, and care for one another and feel less isolated in moments of adversity. And so the actions generate that feeling. And so people are coming together from all over the UK and beyond in community. And so to be part of a wellbeing team within that, you are c- constantly moving and checking in with people and getting to know one another in a deeply emotional situation. And so you create these bonds that then, you know, we now have a community of people across the UK that has just emerged in the last year. Um, and that goes both, you know, within our local group because we're there in actions together, but also, you know, we're acting as we did in October regionally in the north. And then we got moved so many times that we were with Scotland and Cumbria in the northeast and eventually. East Anglia and the yeah. Southwest, you know, so we eventually all came together. And so you're meeting all these people and, and working collaboratively in an emergent process all the time. So it's incredibly intense relationship building. It, this emergent process, which is so much building a regenerative culture there in action on the streets of London, it's an extraordinarily impressive feature. And I think that's partly why it feels such a long time since this Extinction Rebellion protest movement was launched, even though it's only 13 months, because it feels as if that culture, a different culture from any protests maybe that have been before it, maybe even even climate ones like Greenpeace, as it, it, it's, it's made its mark in quite profound ways. Mm. Um, and people come back with this uh, conviction that things can change because we have changed in, you know, inside, deeply. Um, And then, well, you may want to say more about the difference between April and October before we move on to bringing it back home, because it seems to me that in that six months a lot of maturing of the movement took place. And by the time you went back, you and and all the other hundreds of thousands, maybe, were in a a more mature place in relation to what it means, not just to take non-violent direct action, but to be part of a regenerative culture. Yeah, and I'd I'd really like to sort of give credit to the organising that goes on behind the scenes in Extinction Rebellion, because some people feel quite resistant to structure but for me there's been enough structure and and generous amounts of structure and guidance it's been set. enabling hasn't it it's been totally enabling yeah and it's for me it's about setting an intention you know and our intention is like a compass it's it gives us a direction of movement but it doesn't bind us to the to the destination or the journey and and for me this is about you know a journey together and finding our way um, and that intention particularly around having regenerative culture at the core and exploring what we mean by that, because we'll all understand those those two words in different ways, um, has been such a rich process. And we've seen, as you say, an amazing amount of maturing between, you know, the, the April and October uprisings in London um, because of also really valuing this sort of action, reflection, learning cycle um, as a constant process. Um, and so, you know, we learnt a lot from... You know, being part of the action well-being um, in in April and reflecting together to then 
really bring that home and build more of the regenerative culture and from seeing what we'd missed or what was what we needed from that and and learning and going with it and, and that's really starting to blossom and, and continue you know and that cycle will continue indefinitely so it's very clear to me now that the relationship between the well-being role when you're on an action and the regenerative culture emphasis when you get back is it's just so close i mean they're yeah they're part and parcel of the same same you know creative kind of um intention and movement aren't they yeah it's it's sort of because part of it is that thing of going into actions and and that being a more um rounded support that's given because of all the work that's happening in your local space or your regional area that that feeds into then the action um and then but then that then feeds back into how the regenerative culture grows back at home it's sort of it's definitely a a two-way growing and developing Mm. i think and um and when yeah. we formed, when we had our first meeting of the the Regen, <laughs> for short, group, the Regenerative Culture Local Group, we concentrated, didn't we, on the support that would help people before they went off to London, and we're talking about this October now, just only a month ago almost, and um, and what what they would need when they got back. So that was an example of what you've just said, Francis, wasn't it? To yeah. to make sure people went off in the best possible spirit with the morale high and the all the support and the commitments, the intentions that um and then and then we could hold some very profound feelings when people got back. Because maybe it's worth at this point talking about how tough October was. Mm. But maybe it was a very good thing that people had matured in their relationship to Extinction Rebellion between April and October, because otherwise they might not have managed a very, very different um, uh, kind of vibe that the police were generating by being really quite, not violent so much as, but very aggressive and... um, um, had strengthened their determination to wreck this as much as possible. Yeah, understandably. I mean, that's yeah. their job to to try and keep business as usual going. Um, so yes, there was a there was a more concerted effort, I guess, from the police in October, which um, I I totally agree. You know that we were in a better place to to meet that and be fluid, and then there was this theme of being like water in October because we knew we would have to flow with all sorts of things that came up. Mm. Um, but because, you know, we had regionalised the sites in London, whereas in, in April it was quite centrally organised and we had parts in it, but we sort of were turning up to, to just do our bit in our affinity groups. For the October rebellion, the, the 12 sites, the initial 12 sites were, were held and organised totally decentralised so we were organising a site in the north Um, and so it was up to us to have the rotors and to make sure that it all worked and because you know when we arrived and tried to take the road on Millbank the police confiscated most of what we had so we had no kitchens we had you know no well-being tent we had no workshop spaces all these things that we'd 
put a huge amount of planning into. Mm. We were down to our human resource of caring, compassion and determination to make a change. And, and so that continued to flow throughout because that story reoccurred. It sounds then to me as if those care, compassion and the tenets of the regenerative culture and well-being were severely put under strain by the taking away of all those resources. So what were you left with? Or and did you, to you, did you manage yeah, to hold on to it? I think I would agree with Tom. It, it sort of, you know, absolutely, it was really tough. You know, people did not have easy access to food and, you know, things in those first few days and, and shelter and whatnot. Um, but it, it enabled... It, forced us to recognise that, you know, we we have all that we need in us mm-hmm. and in each other and how we how we respond to each other, how we look after each other, um, what we can ask of each other um, and what we can offer and what we can step up to. And and actually it really really showed that up beautifully. <laughs> yeah, and for me, it also highlights a much bigger picture of, you know, why we're out on the streets doing what we're doing and, and what may be to come. And, you know, we're all, I say we're all, the majority of people taking part in Extinction Rebellion, and this has been a huge topic of discussion and debate, have a lot of privilege to be able to do that. Privilege, you know, in terms of finance or in terms of time, or, you know, and resource. Or not worrying um, about how, you know... And the impacts of arrest yeah. and ethnicity and all of yeah. these things that come into privilege, particularly when it relates to policing. Um, you know, and so people might very validly say, well, it was up to you to be on the street and, you know, be without, you know, direct access to whatever you want in the moment, um, you know, which is a very privileged sort of thing to come to, isn't it? Yeah. But what it did show is that when you do have some levels of adversity you know in in a situation of your own choice we can come together and 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 really unite as a community to to look after one another and to share the resources that we do have and you know this is this is the regenerative culture because this is not just about extinction rebellion and our actions this is about the future that we face because we are locked in to a, a future of you know, growing catastrophe in in the natural world that will have a huge impact on us in terms of food shortages, extreme weather events, and ultimately societal breakdown. And, and it touches into the darker sides of the regenerative culture and, and working with our emotions around, you know, the deep adaptation narrative that's very core in, in parts of the thinking and Extinction Rebellion. Um, so that, it was just a little insight into that in October, you know, seeing people moving with all their stuff day after day, you know, as we know, we'll have massive climate refugee crises around the world. So although I'm not likening us to climate refugees, it's giving this insight of instability. Mm. And I think these are hugely important insights that we can gain um, and recognise of why we are putting energy into creating a regenerative culture, because we're going to need it. Certainly. And so what does this mean for strategy, future strategy? Within the movement, or locally, or personally? <laughs> we haven't got time, but it would be all of those things, really, wouldn't it? I don't quite know. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel this is part of adaptation, mm. to come back to that term, because, mm. you know, at the moment we live in a village 
where adaptation is building bigger walls on the riverbanks. We don't need bigger walls on the riverbanks. We need strength in community. We need resilience to our food systems. We need more trees on the hillside. So we need to shift that to me as a regenerative culture, politically, financially, but also in community, is we need to shift away with thinking about this issue. And that, that's local. It's everywhere. It's everywhere, no. but we do it where we live. Yeah. Because yeah. where else would we do it? Mm. Uh, as well as going down to London for something that attracts international attention. Yeah. And is under the nose of the government, which is is also really key you know that thing of like that is what we're talking about is political change and policy change because we we can't all do it on an individual level it it has to be a sort of top down as well as bottom up approach it that's for me is why I go to London because it's under the nose of the government and not to forget that that is you know we have to put pressure there there is only so much that we can do as individuals in the system that is at the moment. Mm, and then on a local level, you know, and you can call it strategy, you can call it anything, but, you know, the work that we are, the three of us involved in as, you know, a, a collective of people wishing to encourage and embed a, a regenerative culture, not, you know, within our local extinction rebellion group, but that, that we hope that that will, you know, spread much wider. And mm. so, you know, the work that we're doing around touching on and, and working with grief and anxiety and you know the the really challenging emotions that come up when we start to face the truth of what's happening in this time so for me a strategy is to enable as many people to to access their inner selves around this in terms of and and be able to access support to process to do inner work that will enable us to, to be stronger and more compassionate individually and in community for whatever we're going to face in the years to come. Um, and that will enable so many things if we're able to do that. Um, but it's a huge, huge task. It is huge. And it, it, um, it comes close to the climate psychology side of things there because there was so much implied as you were talking about how selves were being changed through the regenerative culture well-being sides of these actions, the affinity, the compassion and love, the finding out that it's possible to live differently and even when resources are taken away, all of those things. And now you've touched, Tom, on, on the other side that we are concentrating on locally, which is how we work with the, the grief, the anxiety, um, the panic and depression, maybe all of these things, um, by uh, addressing them rather than hoping that they'll go away uh, or concentrating only on the positive side of things. Uh, but doing that within a supportive group, within a supportive regenerative culture community. And so I know it's been quite a strong side of both your work at, alongside the building of creative cultures. And maybe you could just say a little bit more about what you've chosen to, to concentrate on. Yes, I guess I have a background in 
body awareness, body work, and and on a very personal level, we've found it very helpful to explore into body work in the way that we can integrate mind, body, and emotions to help with processing um, things that are going on for us in our lives. Uh, so I've come together uh, with Wendy um, in this case to um, co-facilitate a climate anxiety group, I suppose. Um, and within that, wanting to bring body work in to be able to in help enable that processing um, of those really deep emotions that we're, we're really terrible at. Mm. <laughs> as, a, as a general thing in, in the UK particularly, um, and at processing grief or processing these, you know, or allowing for the fear that we feel or the frustration or the anger at what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and and by through the group and, and bringing body work to the discussions that then, Wendy, you're able to bring, aren't you, with um, sort of that more um, psychological side and, and talking and sharing in that way to to really sort of process it through and with the body mm-hmm. because in terms of I think in terms of resilience and in terms of longevity at being able to care for ourselves and each other um, we need to be really integrated within ourselves with our body and, and mind so I guess that's been quite a focus for me locally and um, and I'm exploring that through this local group. Yeah and I think tying very closely in with that but just drawing on other methodologies. Um, I've been on a journey with the work of Joanna Macy and others, the work that Reconnect for quite some years, um, and that has really blossomed into many, many sort of actions through this past year, and and a little bit before, um, around activism and supporting activists to be able to process those those more difficult feelings but through the spiral of this work the work that reconnects um so yeah really basing ourselves in gratitude and drawing on our roots of gratitude to to enable us to to honor our pain for the world um as part of this spiral um with some beautiful deep process work that's drawn from areas of deep ecology, so really understanding our place in the web of life, um, also from systems theory, so having that wider scientific perspective, the sort of more holistic science, um, and also um, spiritual traditions, so the sort of spiritual side of, of that work. Um, and through, yeah, really honouring that pain, we're able to unblock feedback loops that we may otherwise suppress or, or or numb within ourselves, which, you know, we're sort of encouraged societally to consume for happiness, Mm. and which is actually blocking out our feedback loops to the pain that we are feeling for our living systems. Um, And then to gain new insights through this, you know, deep ecology systems theory in in order that we can have more clarity to to step into action with clear intention. So that's the spiral of that work. So that's something that I'm really drawn to, to offering in this time. And it and it it does quite deep changing within people as they work together on this. And that seems to me to be a crucial part of the story. Um, that 
the changes that we need to effect in ourselves are, are so profound um, that that kind of work will go on having a very important place well into the future, I'm sure, uh, ever growing in importance. And we take those resources with us. Um, and there's, there's something very significant about witnessing that in ourselves and in others rather than just trying to deal with it on your own. There's something mm. so, so important, I think, about this. Yeah, even if someone's having a different experience to you, but you're, that, that sort of witnessing of that is incredibly supportive. Um, hence doing things as a group, doing things together. I think that's rather than, yeah, feeling that you have to figure it out on your own somehow and then come with your resilience. And, yeah. <laughs> and through these processes, we're also modelling the world that we all need through the way that we interact with one another. And we're doing it here in terms of, you know, the depth of listening so that we're, we're not interrupting one another, but we're, we're really hearing each other. And that's something that cannot be underestimated in this time. And both of these processes we've been talking about are deeply embedded with that. And if we're not able to hear each other in times of crisis, we're not going to be able to respond in the way that we need to with compassion and care. That sounds like a very appropriate note on which to finish. Thank you both very, very much. I've enjoyed that deep listening amongst the three of us. Thank you. Thank Thank you. You. Wendy Holway, Francis Stoteley and Tom Deacon. Climate Crisis Conversations is a podcast series produced by the Climate Psychology Alliance in association with Parity Audio. Please do rate and subscribe and join us again for more.